the astronomers say that the full moon this evening will be bigger and brighter than any full moon for the past 20 years due to the direction and uh, shape of the orbit of the moon just so happens that the conditions are such that the moon will appear larger and brighter than tonight by quite a large amount apparently somewhat reminiscent of India at this time of year they have warm days cold nights or in the winter they do and the misty haze for us comes from the burn-offs from the forestry department India also has a haze in the air at this time of year the new moon, uh, the full moon is often used as a symbol of um, the pure radiant jitter displaying a cool but bright radiance over the world they sometimes say the mind of the stream enterer the Sodapana it's like a quarter of the moon exposed the Sakatagami half a moon Anagami three quarters of the moon the Arahant the full moon exposed bright, radiant, luminous in the night sky and the way that radiance becomes exposed is by development of the path and penetration of the Four Noble Truths to remove the ignorance and craving and attachment which affects our mind as long as we haven't practiced the Dhamma and penetrated truth so the practice of developing the path and the wisdom or insight that will help to remove the ignorance that fuels our attachment that they compare to if cutting away the, the grass or the entangled vegetation that covers as if covers over the, the mind or the moon the effect of 
insight into truth, the true nature of reality, as if cuts away, cuts through the entangled mess of craving and attachment, exposing the the beautiful radiance of the moon or the pure unentangled mind. So to practice that path, to be willing to put effort into developing the the factors of the path requires sata, some faith and conviction, confidence that it can be done, that we as human beings can develop our mindfulness and our insight to the point where we can break through the delusions that normally affect us and cause us suffering. The Buddha, reflecting on the Buddha himself, his life, what he did, can help to bring up that faith Reflecting on the lives of the enlightened disciples of the Buddha and those who have practiced before us and through their example and their teachings have kept this path alive and available for us and we can reflect on them to bring up some faith and confidence in our own practice and to know that even the Buddha had a body and mind just like us. All the enlightened arahants, they had bodies and minds just like us. They were human beings just like us. But they were willing to put in the effort to practice, to train themselves, to follow this path that the Buddha pointed out. So we need to reflect on that, reflect on the fact that human beings can free their minds from delusion, from suffering through their own efforts to bring up some of that faith and confidence that will lead on to effort. If we don't have any confidence in the path well not much effort will be forthcoming but from satire springs wiria effort persistent effort into the practice into uh, keeping the vinaya training the mind in sila samadhi and Panya, developing insight into truth, 
requires effort, persistent effort, continuous effort, faith in the, in the path and in the practice will help to provide that. Give us also the patience to keep going even though sometimes it's difficult or there are obstacles. So with sata, with virya, the Buddha said, uh, virya effort is directed to bringing up mindfulness. Mindfulness, clear comprehension or self-awareness in order to bring our minds to the point where we can see truth, understand truth better. And the Buddha pointed out through his own practice he came to realize that the cause of our suffering as human beings is Ignorance, conditioning, craving, conditioning, attachment. Affecting us all the time whether we realize it or not. And whether we are aware or not. And this process is going on all the time. So the practice of developing insight and understanding is to go deeper into our own experience as humans to understand the nature of this body and mind and to see where craving and attachment is arising and how it's affecting us. To see whether the Buddha was correct in his explanation of suffering and how it arises and how to free ourselves from it. Craving and attachment manifests. It's always with the delusion of self, sense of me and mine, grasping at our experience, our physical experience of this body and the world around it, and then the mental experience of thoughts and feelings and so on. And if we never look more deeply into this, then we will we'll tend to just follow along with the delusion of self and suffer with it. <clears throat> because in its nature, or in their nature, these five candors are impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. And they're conditions that go according to their own nature. And they rise and cease according to causes and conditions. So if we grasp at them as a self, the mind, if the mind does that, then it's always bound to be called into suffering. So as long as there's a delusion of self, there'll be the craving arising that leads us to try and control what we think is us, me, mine, I. The delusion of self always leads us to try to control things and make them a certain way 
make them follow our craving, bend towards our craving. So we get the experience of wanting things to be a certain way, wanting this body to be a certain way, wanting our feelings, memories, emotions, thoughts to be a certain way. But in their nature they can't be that way, the way of craving, it's impossible. So as we develop more awareness and understanding, we're coming to see that the craving can never bring us to peace, happiness, satisfaction, contentment. It's a never-ending source, or you could even say plague on the mind. As long as we never recognize craving for what it is and the effect it has on our mind, it will constantly be disturbing us, agitating us, creating discontent of all kinds, which the very least is mental discontent, but often is coming out in our speech and our actions as well. So we not only can cause ourselves more harm and suffering, but other people harm and suffering as well. All coming from craving as a cause, craving that hasn't been recognized and hasn't been dealt with properly, hasn't been abandoned. So this is something the Buddha said we have to investigate. And maybe it's not true, maybe craving isn't the source of our suffering, but at least it's worth investigating and all these wise teachers have confirmed that what the Buddha said was true, that craving, fueled by ignorance and resulting in attachment is the cause of suffering. By abandoning craving, one frees oneself from suffering. And they've confirmed what the Buddha said was true, so it's worth investigating, giving it a go. And what we find is that the, the nature of craving is a condition, it's a conditioned thing. It arises and passes away. As we meditate, it arises and passes away from moment to moment. We can see that as we practice mindful awareness. Our thoughts and feelings, emotions are arising, passing away. Our experiences of this body and mind are changing, it's changeable. We can see how when craving does arise and we don't do anything about it, well it takes over the mind, confuses us, deludes us into grasping at things, grasping at this body as being me, mine. Grasping at the feelings that come from this body, pleasant, unpleasant, as being me, mine. Grasping at the memories and thoughts and sense consciousness, it's me and mine. And if those moments of craving go unaddressed, unrecognized, continuously, well that sense of self keeps coming up and even gets stronger. So as we practice the Dhamma, 
we can see in the periods where mindfulness is at its weakest and wisdom is at its weakest then craving is at its strongest and with craving the sense of self becomes very strong and the desire to follow craving to follow wishes and desires and wanting is strong the delusion of self is strong but where does that get us? Well, the stronger that delusion of self, it's like you're riding for a fall. Sooner or later it manifests in extreme suffering. And the stronger the craving, the more the disturbance to our experience. The more the emotions are disturbed, the mind is disturbed, the more the suffering comes. Similarly, the more we establish mindfulness and can recognize craving in our experience for what it is, a condition, phenomena that's impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self, the more we can recognize that by establishing mindful awareness, wisely investigating it, and then the experience is the mind its grasping, its craving, its attachment fades and the experience is one of more of a relaxed sense of peace arising because craving fades through the power of mindfulness and wisdom. One experiences more peace, more dispassion, detachment, fading away cessation and of course the sense of suffering ceases the sense of self ceases sense of suffering fades away so when we have the most peace is when that sense of self grasping is at its least or has completely disappeared if only temporarily So that's why they say when we meditate, when we focus our mind on the object and through our efforts with faith, with wiriya, bringing up mindfulness directed to the object and the mind becomes stable and calm, concentrated on its object. Then at that time the sense of self fades away. It's this grasping and identification with the body and feelings and thoughts and memories fades away and there's just the knowing of the object. At that time the sense of self is very minimal. might subtly be there but it's very minimal and in its place arises this sense of emptiness, emptiness of craving, emptiness of self. So it's a peaceful contented emptiness it's not a emptiness that you might associate with a sort of a, a meaninglessness or a sort of vacuum of, that might seem more depressing but it's just an emptiness of self and the suffering that comes from the grasping itself that might be just for a few moments where we have enough clarity to recognize craving as craving and drop it from the mind 
or it could be many moments where mindfulness and wisdom are very strong. But as we train, we can see more and more this is the direction the mind will tend to go as we're training in mindfulness. It's a process, it's a training in letting go of craving, recognizing it and abandoning it because it's the cause of suffering. More and more our mind starts to think and look at its own experience in that way even sometimes to start rooting out craving where it may not be obvious yet and actually starts investigating, looking like a, a detective, looking for clues, one is actually interested, concerned to find craving. The more one understands craving as the cause of suffering, the more the mind will want to uproot it, get rid of it. like a very diligent person cleaning a room and they don't just do the sort of minimal necessary to clean the room so they can go on to something else. They want to root out every bit of dust and dirt that they can find. Or similarly the practitioner wants to root out wherever, craving wherever it may be arising. And the more one practices, the more one gains experience and understanding and one's thoughts and views start to fall in line with Dhamma, then the more energy and interest one has to do that job, finding craving and rooting it out. And this is why one's effort becomes more persistent effort, continuous effort. One gains strength in the practice, strength in Meditation, so one's able maybe to sit longer or walk for longer periods, to deal with different kinds of dukkha from tiredness or pain in the legs or whatever, to deal with different emotional states, distraction, uh, wanting, craving, lust, anger, all the different emotional states we've experience, one starts to want to really investigate them to see where's the craving and how can it be abandoned rather than just always following those emotional states and holding on to them and suffering with them. One wants to go deeper and deeper right down to the root of the problem. This tends to be the, the way one's practice develops and the mind wants to start seeing where is craving arising in all aspects of life, so not just when meditating on a cushion or in in one's kuti, say, but every time from morning till night one starts to look at craving, start to recognize it for what it is, to see the trouble it causes, to see how it deludes us, to see through the sense of self how that's really just built up by moments and moments of craving coming together to give this sense of identity of me and mine.
the result of this is that one starts to think in the correct way. Ajahn Chah always used to say, we suffer because we think wrongly, incorrectly. Kip, hip. But by training in mindfulness and wisdom to investigate our experience, then we start to think correctly. You know, where before the mind grasped at sense objects, sensuality, thinking that's going to bring me the happiness I want, now it starts to set aside that grasping, goes more towards renunciation and letting go of the grasping at sense objects. So letting go of the grasping at lust, grasping at greed, the objects of greed. It aims more towards renunciation, contentment. Whereas before the mind used to fall into negative reactions to unpleasant experiences from this body, from the world around, from other people, the mind starts to move towards metta, kindness, away from anger. It sees anger is just another form of craving that deludes us and causes us suffering. The mind moves away from hatred, thoughts of hatred, or thoughts of wanting to get back at somebody, harm somebody, deliberately harm someone because we feel hurt or having been harmed by them, or we feel threatened or insecure by them. The mind sees through that as just another form of craving, so it moves naturally towards thoughts of compassion. The more we investigate craving and recognize it, then our mind becomes more in line with samma, sankapa, the right thought, right attitudes, based in renunciation, kindness, goodwill, compassion, simply because it sees craving as the real source of our suffering, rather than lacking any sense objects or lacking a girlfriend or money or wealth, all these things that the mind tends to crave for, or the rejection of unpleasant experiences, pain and discomfort, physical pain, mental pain, based on situations and other people. The mind no longer follows those ways, starts to seek it. Craving is just a cause of suffering, so it goes towards renunciation and kindness and compassion quite naturally. And these qualities build on themselves as one experiences more renunciation, more com- kindness, compassion, while well, those reinforce right view, right thought. They support the arising of more states of clarity, of mindfulness which supports the arising of more wisdom and insight, which helps us to see even on ever more refined levels the the kinds of craving that we can fall into and recognize them for what they are. Any, Any sense of self that forms for external experiences and phenomena, for internal 
experiences and phenomena. Any grasping we start to see as cause of suffering. So the mind gets more used to and more familiar just letting go, giving up and returning to a place of mindfulness and wisdom. Of course, because of the power of craving, it is sometimes hard to resist. We give in to it because we've given in to it for many lifetimes, many days, nights, years in this life, and many lifetimes previously. Sometimes craving can be very, very strong. So we have to learn how to use all the tools, techniques and methods that the Buddha gave and suggested. And sometimes even have to find our own, those that are suitable, that seem to work. But the basic tools we use begin with the Vinaya, the Sila, just learning outwardly to restrain our craving in our actions and our speech. Just learning to be restrained, composed in the way we act, the way we speak. So then craving is internalized and already it starts to be undermined. When you use sila as a tool, it's, it's helping to already to interfere with the way craving takes over the mind. Especially when we begin practice, we can see how fast craving is. How often you know, just suddenly a mood or a thought arises and suddenly we've grasped it, identified with it, and we become that way. So we speak, we act without thinking, without realizing. And often we act in ways that harm ourselves or others because of that craving. And it's so fast it seems almost impossible to be able to sort it out or do anything about it. Maybe only when all the suffering has passed then we reflect back and we realize, oh, that was my craving. It caused me that problem with that issue or that person. But if you reflect, you can see the value of sila is that it helps us to restrain that very tendency for the craving to come up so fast and in unexpected or surprising ways. You just keep training your mind in restraint of the, the precepts, restraint of the senses, restraint in the way we use our requisites, learning to be moderate, learning to be content with what we have. As conscious practices, those are helping us to restrain our craving day after day. We learn to not say everything that comes up into our mind. We learn to choose what to say, what not to say. We learn how to speak things that are meaningful rather than just idle or meaningless chatter. We learn how to speak at the right time, in the right way, choosing the right words. You know, these are practices that are helping to 
restrain our craving from taking over our behavior. But they are practices, they're training. We have to learn how to train ourselves. Learn how to train ourselves in our actions so we don't act with greed or anger. Just keep within the precepts, within the practice of sense restraints and the wise use of the requisites. This obviously takes time, so it can be quite frustrating dealing with craving, how it keeps shooting up, causing us to lose our mindfulness and just act according to that craving. But any success you have in restraining yourself, you can build on that and see the value of restraint in the sealer. Keep working with it, and over time will it have its good effect. And that conditioning process can work in a positive way as well as a negative way. The, the Eightfold Path is still a conditioning process. It's still, like everything in this world, that's a, what we say a loka-dhamma or lokiya-dhamma. It's still a worldly dhamma in the sense that even the path we practice, the sila, the samadhi, the panya that we practice, it's a part of the conditioned world, but it's positive conditioning, positive karma that we're training ourselves in. So it takes some time, effort, might even be painful sometimes. You know, to restrain craving can be quite a challenge sometimes, can hurt. But the only thing that's really hurting is kilesa, is, is, the, is the very root of the craving. It's not, there's no real self who's hurting or any person who's hurting. It's just the kilesas and our craving that's hurting when we restrain it. The more you can see that happening, then the more willing you are to restrain your craving, not follow it. And that hurt gives way to peace. So it's not like one is just in a caught in a situation of sort of suppressing one's craving and then feeling miserable because of it. And actually, when one wisely and mindfully suppresses craving in either in body, speech or mind, the result is a letting go and a release. And this is where the mind goes to this sense of emptiness, emptiness of self, emptiness of craving and attachment. It's accompanied by a rising of happiness, peace, joy. But at first that might be slow to come, so we have to have a little bit of patience and endurance and be willing to work with the practice. And just like somebody climbing a mountain, if you've ever climbed a steep mountain, especially towards the top of that mountain, you can only keep walking upwards and often every step becomes painful if you become tired. And the mountain is very steep. Maybe it's difficult to walk as well because it's so steep, maybe rocky. But you can see the top in sight. If you've ever climbed a mountain before, you know when you get to the top, all the pain will disappear immediately. So you keep going. So there is some pain, but as you get to the top, 
all the pain disappears and your your legs return to normal. And then on the way down you generally don't have much pain. And practices like that, there has to be some pain and struggle at first. But as one gets more comfortable in the practice, that becomes easier, less less pain, less difficulty. Then the mind becomes stronger. You know these spiritual, these spiritual powers in their their effect on the mind as we develop them is it makes the mind strong. You know, the sata, the wiriya, the sati, samadhi, the panya. They strengthen the mind so it's able to lift heavier loads, meaning it's able to lift off increasing amounts of craving and attachment, put them down, let them go. It's able to go delve deeper into the origins of craving and attachments. This is how all those practitioners of the past have done it. Just being willing to, little by little, let go of their craving and attachment, recognizing it, letting it go, not giving into it. Little by little, establishing mindfulness does start to change the mind. We can't change the world, but we can change this mind by training it in the right way cutting away this delusions of craving attachment, delusions of self that fool us and cause us so much problems. Bringing the mind to more stillness and more peace and clarity. Just like that full moon, cutting away the entangled web of stuff that covers it over. One can't ultimately can't completely free one's life from pain, discomfort, and the dukkha, say, of a body, because we have karma. We have to have the pain of old age, sickness, and death, and nobody can avoid that. But we can change the way the mind relates to it. We can change the way the mind relates to the world around us. And then imperfections, the unsatisfactoriness of this world, the mind can relate to it through mindfulness and wisdom. So then there's nothing more to be stirred up by or afraid of or insecure about. The mind just knows the nature of things, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self, and doesn't create any more delusion of self and and the suffering that comes from that out of experience just knows things as the way they are so the enlightenment experience of all those beings since the time of the Buddha and all the monks and nuns in the time of the Buddha and since usually uh, we hear they're described as just sort of one final moment 
where the the mind penetrates to see uh, the conditioned nature of reality, all things that are subject to arising, subject to cessation. But that's built up through the training in sila, samadhi, panya, maybe over many, many lifetimes. It's not that they just see it once and that's the end of it. They must have been training for a long time beforehand, but finally that insight is established and the mind changes its way it relates to this body and to the world around us. It's built up from many moments of insight, many moments of establishing mindfulness, just seeing the conditioned nature of things. Every thought arises, passes away. Every memory, every mood arises, passes away. Every feeling arises, passes away. This body is constantly changing. Each cell in this body is arising, passing away. And so on. Just keep investigating and reflecting these truths with mindfulness and insight. And little by little the mind just comes to know the way things are. That's what brings it to this state of brightness, like the bright full moon. And no more room for delusion, or if any delusion creeps in, it's seen very quickly. In bright full moon, if there's just one small dark cloud goes across it, well, you'll see that straight away. And the brighter your mind becomes, then the quicker and the easier it is to see craving and delusion and to remedy it. So I'll leave you with these words for your contemplation tonight.